HCC Connect is an initiative of Core to Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Bayer. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts, academic institution, or the rest of the HCC Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core to Ed website. Hi there, welcome uh, to our HCC Connect podcast. I'm Neil Mehta, an associate professor at uh, UCSF in uh, transplant hepatology, and I'm joined by Amit Singhal, who we'll throw it over to in a moment. But today we're going to be discussing highlights from three major uh, GI and oncology congresses, as well as recent publications. And we'll be trying to discuss advances in the management of HCC, including both systemic therapies and local regional therapies data. So Ahmed, I'd love it if you could introduce yourself, but was really wanted to get your opinion to start on what are some of the advances in systemic therapies that these Congresses and recent publications have really, what's caught your eye? Yeah, thanks, Neil. I'm super excited to do this with you. Um, welcome to the audience. Um, as Neil said, uh, my name is Ahmed Singhal, um, professor of medicine and director of the liver cancer program at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. So, Neil, I completely agree with you. Very exciting time in HCC. We've seen tremendous advances in the systemic therapy landscape. As you and our listeners probably know, we've gone from a field where we had one systemic therapy available in 2007. Then we had other tyrosine kinase inhibitors come in first line and second line. And now, like many cancers, we've seen immune checkpoint inhibitors completely revolutionize our approach to HCC management, not only in the systemic therapy space, But as you and I will discuss um, over the next 20 minutes or so, also in this earlier stages of disease where we see a lot of exciting trials go on. As you referenced, I mean, I think the trials that we've seen drop recently include IM grade 150, so large randomized control trial, serafinib, versus the combination of atizolizumab and bevacizumab. Recently, we saw an update published in Journal of Hepatology, and we finally saw the overall survival estimate for um, this combination. And so now we know that this combination of Atizo and Bev provide a median survival of approximately 19 months. So, you know, we've surpassed that one and a half year benchmark for survival in the advanced stage setting, huge advance for systemic therapy. We've also seen the Himalaya trial report. So this was large randomized control trial of comparing Devalumab and Tremolimumab. So this combination of a two immune checkpoint inhibitors compared to serafinib. And once again, very exciting data. So we see objective responses in approximately 20% of people. We see a median survival estimate surpassing 16 months. And most notably, this is a trial where we see a landmark reporting at three years. And we see a three-year survival estimate over 30%, which is super exciting, once again, in the advanced stage setting to know that you can achieve long survivals of three years or greater in over 30% of your patients. And finally, we saw the COSMIC 312 trial report. This was published in Lancet Oncology, looking at the combination of cabozatinib and atizolizumab. I think this was a mixed trial, and I think all of us are trying to figure out how we will use this in our clinical practice. We saw significant improvements in progression-free survival, but unfortunately, the trial failed to show an improvement in overall survival. And I can tell you, I personally was surprised about this. There was a lot of interest in cabozatinib, sort of as an agent which hits CMET and Axel and may sort of potentiate immune checkpoint inhibitors more so than other TKI agents. 
But unfortunately, this is why we wait for the actual phase three data, because we unfortunately did not see improvements in survival. So I think in short, super exciting time, a lot of promise once again in the systemic therapy space. I echo your thoughts, especially for Cosmic 312, that super surprising that progression-free survival was was improved, but then overall survival was quite similar. So I agree that story is, is not yet finished yet. I'm sure we'll be eagerly awaiting more data as to what the role of uh, Cabo Atezo is. But I think from a clinical perspective, Amit, this is a, a great new problem to have, but it is a problem. How, how do you think about these different first-line options in terms of are you recommending one over the other now that we have multiple options, or is it kind of like dealer's choice? Or, you know, where, where are you thinking we are right now? Yeah, you know, Neil, I think it's funny, you know, in, in HCC, there's some simplicity about only having one therapy, right? Life is simple, life is easy. And once again, it's great. Once again, all of us wanted to have multiple therapy options for our patients. But as you have more agents come to market, you sort of have to make decisions between these different treatments, and you have to make sequencing decisions. And the issue here is that we don't have biomarkers, right? So there's no biomarker that I can say this therapy is the best therapy for this patient versus another. And so there is a little bit of the Wild West that's forming. And I think that it's only going to get worse over time as we see other trials also report. We're looking for the combination of levatinib and pembrolizumab, which should report soon. Epinevo is being evaluated in the frontline setting. So there's all these other therapies that are being evaluated. Uh, I mean, at this point... We shouldn't be doing cross-trial comparisons. That's, I mean, as we know, that can be quite dangerous to sort of do. But I have to say that both Atezo and Bev and Dervatremi are good therapies for us to have available for our patients. Very good, exciting survival estimates. As you know, Atezo-Bev requires an EGD to screen for varices. Those at higher risk of bleeding are not eligible to go on Bev. So Dervatremi is a good option in those patients. But I think Atezobev, I think, is in many people's books, sort of a good preferred first line therapy to start. Perfect. Yeah, no, I, I, that's kind of how we approach it as well. And it does seem like the the kind of grade three and four adverse events are, are fairly similar in terms of percentages and severity across some of these combination options. So like you said it's a, it's a good problem to have, to have multiple good options in this space. But more and more we're hearing, OK, well, let's, let's push the envelope. Now we have a couple different first line regimens. Well, that's for BCLC kind of stage C advanced HCC. What about earlier stages? What are you kind of seeing from these conferences or recent publications or even in your clinical practice? Are you seeing more and more kind of earlier intermediate stage um, HCC patients being offered some of these therapies? Is there any data for that? Yeah. So, you know, Neil, I think, of course, as we start to see advances in the systemic therapy landscape, the question is, can you apply this to earlier stages of disease? I guess briefly, let's lay the landscape, right? So even when serafinib came around, you saw that same excitement. So serafinib came around, and then immediately thereafter, Storm, looking at this in the sort of adjuvant setting and high-risk surgical resection and ablation patients, as well as space, looking at this in the combination with TACE. And once again, let's go back in time to when serafinib came to market. I mean, there's a revisionist history that like, oh, serafinib, like we, we do better now. But there was a lot of excitement. Serafinib was the first therapy for HCC at the time, and everyone expected storm and space would also have significant improvements in the early and intermediate stage. And as we both know, those trials both ended up being negative. So this is now being completely reassessed with the introduction of the immune checkpoint inhibitors. So data ongoing in the early stage setting, and as we'll talk about also in the intermediate stage setting. However, we're going to be talking about how exciting these data are and how interesting these data are, 
I have to say, we don't do this as part of routine clinical practice. And I think that's important. These data do not mean we should start doing it right now. These data highlight that trials are important and we need to evaluate this and enroll patients in trials so we know if these combinations work. But right now, so let's review this. So where do we stand in terms of early stage disease? And so let's start with surgical resection. So um, Ahmed Kassab and, and colleagues looked at the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab. So once again, two immune checkpoint inhibitors prior to surgical resection. So phase two study looking at nevo with or without IPI prior to liver resection in 27 patients. Actually, a randomized control trial looking at this in this phase two setting. You know, these grade three and four AEs were seen in some patients. So somewhere between 25 and 45% of patients, depending on if you use nevo alone or you use the combination. Once again, combination, not surprisingly, higher treatment related to AEs. Good news, no patients had a delay in surgery due to the treatment-related AE. So it doesn't look like that this is going to inhibit or delay surgery. And interestingly, major pathologic responses were seen in approximately 30% of patients in both groups, and median progression-free survival was over nine months in both groups. So early data suggesting efficacy in this early-stage setting. Now, this was further advanced when we saw an abstract published at ASCO, This year, we saw data from the phase 1b prime HCC trial, 17 patients, once again, with ipinevo prior to resection, primary endpoint of this phase 1b trial being um, safety. So once again, therapy was well tolerated. Only one patient had a grade three treatment-related AE, and that was AST and ALT elevation. Notably, responses were seen in over 20% of patients, disease control rate over 90%. So once again, exciting data, albeit early. And finally, we saw data looking at the neoadjuvant therapy using Cabo and Nevo, and this was done by Mark Yarshur and investigators from Hopkins. And I think the twist here is that these were not patients that were resectable at baseline. These were what what they were terming borderline resectable. And I have to say, Neil, I think this is like a case where beauty's in the eye of the beholder, like borderline resectable. Like, you know, like I think that's where the surgeons will debate what is borderline resectable. But that being said, that is the caveat for like this trial. They looked at 15 patients and 12 of those patients who they deemed borderline resectable were able to undergo margin negative resection. So that by itself is a win. And then of those patients who underwent resection, over 40% had a major pathologic response. So now I just went through a bunch of data. What does this even mean, right? My takeaway is that immune checkpoint inhibitors appear safe. But it looks like you can give these immune checkpoint inhibitors, you have some degree of AEs, but it doesn't look like this delays surgery. And further, there appears to be an efficacy signal, right? You're seeing responses in 20 to 30% of patients. Now, that being said, nobody really cares about a response because that patient's going to have a surgery, right? They're going to have that completely taken out. The question is, does this improve recurrence-free survival? And most notably, does this improve overall survival? And those ones, we need to wait for the data, right? So that's where the phase three data are going to come in. And understanding, I think, particularly assessing overall survival is going to be difficult because of subsequent lines of therapy. But I think that's what we need to see. We need to see improvements in recurrence-free survival and, you know, plus minus OS before we start to use these routinely in clinical practice. Good thing for those people who are itching to use these and get impatient and saying they want to do it, the data aren't that far away. These phase three studies have already launched. And honestly, I anticipate that we're going to see our first one 
I think I am brave 050. I guess we'll see if that's true or not. But I think we're going to see data from that in the next year, if not in the next few months. So for those that are like super excited and want to do this, it's not that far away. I think we're going to see the data, but I anticipate we'll know the answer soon. That's a really nice summary of these recent studies that are in this neoadjuvant space. The I Am Brave um, 050 trial that you mentioned, I think, is super exciting, right? It's It hopefully will give us this answer. And just to discuss it a bit more, I think the goal is over 600 patients. They're enrolling both patients in the adjuvant setting after resection or ablation uh, with the Tezobev versus active surveillance, which I think is a great study design. I think it's, you know, 25 countries, 170 sites is the goal. This is all super exciting. And, and what I'm most excited about, um, and we've kind of seen this a little bit in the transplant space, it's been really hard to design a really good adjuvant trial to, to look at HCC recurrence. But what the I Am Brave um, 050 kind of authors have done is they're actually doing the stratification based on how many high-risk features that patients have once you examine other resection specimens. So looking at things like tumor size and number, looking at vascular invasion, looking at tumor differentiation and highlighting the poorly differentiated tumors, right? Because we've gotten into trouble in the transplant space. If you look at a group of patients with a really low risk of post-transplant recurrence, well, then it's going to be really hard to find a signal or say anything useful. But Fortunately, in the resection space or in the ablation space where there's a 70% or so risk of recurrence, I think we'll be able to get our answer with the way they've designed this trial. And of course, their key endpoint is, as you mentioned, the primary is recurrence-free survival. So as you mentioned, I, this is exciting. I think we'll get this data hopefully soon. And, you know, this could be a game changer in, in this highly relevant population of patients when we're trying for cure. Yeah, no, I completely agree, Neil. And I think that right now the trials are primarily evaluating adjuvant therapy, and then, of course, you know, you see some of these early studies in neoadjuvant. And then the question will be, should this be used adjuvant or neoadjuvant? And, I, you know, we'll see this. So, Neil, you mentioned transplant as you were discussing this and putting this in, in a frame here. And I think surgery, surgical resection is easier. Transplant, of course, you have to worry about this risk of graft loss, et cetera. But we're seeing some of the data. So can you talk about some of the early data we've seen in terms of immune checkpoint inhibitors as bridging therapy? Um, and what should be our thought here? Should this be used? Should it not? What, what's the idea? Yeah, sure. Yeah, this is, you know, this is giving us in the transplant space a lot of headaches trying to figure out, you know, what is the role of immune checkpoint inhibitors in these patients who are trying to get to transplant? So just to kind of lay the land a little bit. So Amit, earlier you talked about kind of some of the immune-related adverse events that we're commonly seeing. And one signal is that potentially if you combine two together, such as in the Himalaya trial, where serious immune-related adverse events were kind of almost twice as common as in the Derva monotherapy arm in the Himalaya trial, for example. So that gives us a little bit of concern when we're talking about usually patients listed for transplant with HCC often are decompensated, right? And so now you're, if you're thinking about throwing a combination of, uh, you know, ICI there, now you're worried about, hey, are we going to be causing kind of further liver failure, taking someone from a child pu patient A to, to B or C, for example? Or, and so that is a concern that we don't have much data. But the bigger concern, really, I think, and the one that's gotten the most publicity is basically, uh, what about when you give immunotherapy to a patient who's about to undergo liver transplant? Is there a risk of post-transplant acute rejection and graft failure? Really, that's, that's the question. Are we kind of co-inhibiting tumor and donor antigens? There's been a couple studies. They're all relatively small, but one of the first studies to come out was um, by the UCSD group, and they had five patients, five HCC patients who received pre-transplant immunotherapy. And they found that the both of the patients who received immunotherapy within three months of transplant actually developed acute cellular rejection and severe hepatic necrosis. And one of them actually required repeat transplant. So that's quite concerning. 
On the other hand, and again, a small sample size, but none of the three patients who underwent transplant more than three months from the last dose of immunotherapy developed rejection of graft loss. So that was an interesting study. And then there's also been a report from uh, Parisa Tabrizian from Mount Sinai that described a nine HCC patients who underwent transplant after receiving nivolumab kind of monotherapy as a, kind of as an element of pre-transplant tumor uh, treatment. Almost all of those patients actually received their last dose of Nevo within a month of transplant. Some of them were being used for downstaging, some were always within Milan, and most of them were received concurrent local regional therapy. So kind of a, a good example of a common approach to transplant these elements. And what they found is after over a year of post-transplant follow-up, they didn't see any uh, severe allograft rejections or, or graft loss. There was no post-transplant deaths reported. So obviously, we'd like to get longer-term follow-up data from both of those studies. And neither of them are really kind of trying to answer the question, should we be giving this therapy? They're really trying to tell us, is it safe? From the way I look at these is that, you know, we don't have a great kind of washout period number, given the half-lives of some of these commonly used immunotherapies, like a Tezo, for example, of nearly four weeks. I think uh, it is reasonable to consider a washout period of two to three months so that you're not getting your last dose of ICI right before transplant and then and then running to this uh, risk that we saw from the UCSD group. So I think that's a, a reasonable approach in terms of safety. But I think we're still kind of need to get more efficacy data uh, as well. And Neil, can you tell me like your thought of using immune checkpoint inhibitors as bridging therapy? Do you think that this is mainly to decrease risk of dropout from the wait list? Or do you think that this is to improve, you know, recurrence free survival after transplant? Like what's the what's the goal here? That is the question is why are we even bothering doing that? So from my perspective, I think most patients with HCC within Milan who are who are listed for transplant with a, you know, for example, relatively low AFP, likely are going to have a, a relatively um, successful kind of journey down the transplant pathway. We have relatively high rates of getting these patients to transplant, and they typically do really well after transplant. So I don't really think that there's going to be a, a main role for checkpoint therapy, for example, in most patients for HCC listed for transplant. But I think what we've seen is that we're really trying to push the envelope in, in, in certain high-risk patients, such as those who um, exceed the Milan criteria, who, who are beyond even UNOS downstaging criteria, or patients with multifocal disease or who aren't really responding to local regional therapy. There is a certain subset of these patients who have inferior outcomes. They have higher risk of waitlist dropout, and they also have higher risk of post-transplant recurrence. I think these are the patients that I think we really need to highlight. So, you know, when I think about it, I think the ones that I think we should kind of start to consider for trials like this are patients who what we would call all comers or patients who are beyond downstaging. These are the patients we think have the highest risk of waitlist dropout and, and may not do as well post-transplant. And so these are the ones that we're starting to think about, uh, maybe including in a protocol where you might combine local regional therapy and systemic therapy to try to improve transplant-related outcomes. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, Neil, you, you and your group have done a lot of this work in terms of those patients who are highest risk. And so I think those would be some of the features that we can maybe use, once again, assuming we have better data, to target this. So it's not like an all-comer sort of approach, but really a targeted approach. So Neil, you primarily focus there on the bridging aspect. And I know that's sort of what we were planning to talk about, but it's so frustrating when you transplant somebody and you're like, this is a cure, and then they recur. And they typically recur badly. This tumor biology is just different when you've sort of immunosuppressed even mildly post-transplant. I have to say, I've been at least considering IOs in some of these patients. 
but I haven't pulled the trigger. And so can you just discuss how safe is it to consider immune checkpoint inhibitors in those patients post-transplant? That's uh, the other big question of the space is, is it something that we can even offer? And, and I think that the issue here is that, as you mentioned at the kind of the top of this podcast, most of these combination therapies have at least one, if not both, immune checkpoint inhibitors. But again, this risk of uh, using these therapies after transplant is uh, high on the minds of most transplant providers. It's not just the risk of acute cellular rejection, graft loss, and the potential need for retransplant, but also there's other uh, immune-related adverse events that happen quite commonly in this patient population who's on immunosuppression after their liver transplant. And so even at UCSF, we've seen a couple of patients with really severe colitis, for example, or other really bad reactions, I guess we could say, to, to trying to use some of these therapies after transplant. So I will say the data is sparse. There are some smaller case series that have been kind of looked at this and uh, you know, obviously most of them are retrospective and here's how many patients we, we looked at and here's how many had uh, problems. So it's, it's really hard to kind of really trust data like that just because it's so sensitive to kind of what you're seeing, right? If you have eight patients who've done it and none of them had any problems, you may not publish that. But if you have three who did it and, and two had bad problems, that's something that you're going to put out there. So I, I think we're still waiting for more data. But at this time, I think most of the community is still extremely nervous about the risks uh, of using these agents after transplant. And so I, I think outside of a clinical trial, it's probably not recommended, uh, you know, especially because there's so many nuances, right? Like, what do you do with their steroid doses? Like, we've seen some of this data that's come out talking about trying to get them on stable doses, make sure they haven't had any recent rejection, uh, adjust their steroid dose. And so kind of tailoring their, their immunosuppression while you maybe add one of these therapies is something that probably should be done in the clinical trial setting. And we're still awaiting more data, I think. One thing I, I also wanted to chat about, I know we've been talking about this use of maybe systemic therapy prior to transplant, but we've seen a lot of excitement about this. And we talked about who might be targeted for this. But I, I think one of the nice things about this space um, it is just the how many clinical trials are currently going on about combining systemic therapy and liver-directed therapy for intermediate stage kind of BCLCB, HCC. Maybe 10, if not more, large trials currently trying to understand this issue that we were talking about a lot has been for many years, okay, here's your one therapy. You are, you are into the TACE arm or you are into the systemic therapy arm. So I, I've been really excited about this. Uh, obviously, we're still awaiting data, but any of these kind of phase two and three studies that are combining systemic therapy and liver-directed therapy, what are you looking out for? Is it kind of taste versus tear is one of the highlights, or is there a certain kind of combination that you think is likely to become something that we can really uh, provide some benefit for these patients? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, uh, Neil. So like, you know, much like we've seen this early stage explode with trials looking at the role of systemic therapies, we've seen also a lot of um, studies ongoing in the intermediate stage setting. And so I think this starts with increasing recognition of heterogeneity within the BCLC stage B. So we've now been like, this is not just one group of patients. This is really a group of patients that have different prognoses and different treatment strategies. So um, you can see this, for example, within UNOS downstaging, we often think about these patients, if they're otherwise eligible, should be thought of as downstaging to transplant. Those patients um, who have like a little bit beyond that, probably LRT is their sort of destination therapy. So these patients will get taste or tear, et cetera, as their destination therapy. And those patients who are on the larger side of BCLC stage B may be better for systemic therapy or combination therapies. This idea of quote unquote taste unsuitable 
once again, this is like beauty in the eye of the beholder, where like everyone has their own definition for this, different thresholds. Some people are thinking beyond down, you know, downstaging. Some people use the six and twelve prognostic score. Some people, you know, say greater than fifty percent liver involvement, and nobody really knows the answer of where local regional therapy by itself is insufficient. For example, the BCLC update uses this diffuse, extensive bilobar disease or infiltrative disease in their 2020 update. And so that's where they say these patients should be considered for something else. And independent of that exact threshold, I think that there's recognition that once again, we need to do better than LRT alone, whether that's systemic therapy alone or whether that's combinations as you brought up. And I think this concept is best supported in my opinion by this study by Kudo and colleagues, right? So Kudo basically did a retrospective propensity matched analysis Patients treated with local regional therapy versus lenvatinib up front. And in short, lenvatinib had better survival, primarily driven by preservation of liver function. And now the thought is that this may be true for IOs as well. And so as you say, you know, there's lots of data going on. So there's actual studies comparing IO versus LRT. So the ABC trial is a global phase three randomized control trial comparing atezolbev versus TACE and those patients with intermediate stage HEC, primary endpoint time to treatment failure. We are launching a phase two study comparing atezolbev versus local regional therapy in patients beyond Milan criteria in the United States. And the, the spin here is that we're also incorporating radioembolization as a potential local regional therapy. And this is important because, as you know, this has become, you know, in many centers, the preferred local regional approach whenever possible. Now, as you mentioned, I think that it's not just necessarily local regional or systemic. There's a lot of interesting combinations, which I agree with you are very interesting. We don't have any of those data currently, although there's many studies ongoing, and I think those are very promising. And I think we're going to have to then determine, is it combination? Is it LRT alone? Is it systemic therapy alone? Once again, this whole idea of the wild, wild west, it's going to be you know pretty bad in, in, in intermediate stage HCC. What's your thoughts on these trials and the studies ongoing there? especially thinking of it from a transplant lens, right? Always trying to get patients, if possible, to cure. You know, often we think about transplant. And when I, when I read some of these studies, like the one by, by Kudo that you re- referenced earlier, I really start to think, okay, well, we've been doing things a certain way. And, and should we be using more systemic therapy to even downstage patients to transplant, right? You look at these numbers from Kudo and you're like, wow, that's pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, 73% objective response rate, right? That's, that's a much longer progression-free survival. I still think, right, taste and, and radioembolization are going to be the backbone of, of downstaging. And we've, we haven't really found any difference in six, uh, probability of, of uh, downstaging between those two options. But, you know, for example, if we do have a patient beyond, you know, downstaging, for example, that we're trying to get uh, downstaged and, and maybe we started with uh, taste or radioembolization. And I think within this kind of perspective trial space, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of these studies coming out where that, that suggest, well, hey, if you can add a you know, a Tezobev or, or a Derva, or there's a lot of different combinations out. Maybe these are patients that are going to have much higher response rates overall, much more likely to be able to maintain within Milan, and then therefore much more likely to be able to get to transplant. So I think it's a super exciting space. Again, not necessarily just for the kind of the standard 80% of patients who are listed for transplant with HCC, but more for those that were a little bit trying to push the envelope, right? We don't want to do anything too crazy. We don't want to be, you know, patients with rising AFP or just keep, you know, keep popping up tumors. Maybe those aren't, you know, the right patients to transplant. But there is that subset, I think, that currently have a high risk uh, waitlist dropout that 
probably or potentially, if we can start adding systemic therapy to these patients, maybe we're going to be able to get a larger percentage to get disease stability within Milan and get a higher percentage to transplant. Yeah, I think, Neil, that's that's a really great approach and a great way to think about this. I think the take-homes that I think both of us are saying, really exciting time in HCC, right? We've seen tremendous advances in systemic therapy. We're starting to see data that are applying these to earlier stages of disease. However, too early to do this as part of clinical practice, but a lot of excitement. And I think the next stage, as you referenced here, is who do we apply these combinations in? to optimize outcomes. And so like, which are the patients you should consider this in? The nice thing is as we have advances, there's more clinical questions that come up, more work to do. And I think this is where the next few years are gonna be very, very exciting. But the simple days of drawing a line down and saying, this is a taste patient, this is a resection patient, those days are done. Those algorithms, unfortunately, are gonna become much more complicated and it's gonna be combinations. It's gonna be transitions back and forth. The key thing here, multidisciplinary care. These things can no longer be decided by a hepatologist alone or an interventional radiologist alone or a medical oncologist alone. As you have combinations, like which is going to be the future, you need to do these things in a multidisciplinary fashion to optimize patient outcomes. I think it was really fun to talk to you about this, the type of thing where talking about it just reminds me how exciting everything is. And I guess we'll sort of see what comes out from these data over the next several years. Thanks again for the listeners for, for listening for the last you know 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, and hopefully you're as excited as Neil and I about all the advances to come. This HCC Connect podcast was brought to you by Cortoed Independent Medical Education. Please visit cortoed.com for more information.